This morning we are continuing our series in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a series that began last spring, just after Easter, through Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Um, some of you may be uh, tolerating the slow pace through these chapters, but take heart. Uh, we're almost done with chapter 5. We're making progress. Um, I want to direct your eyes, uh, if you have a Bible, open it, or a phone with an app, open it. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 serves as really a kind of an anchor and a thesis for all that we've been talking about the last couple weeks and this week and the coming weeks under the heading of, of Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament, Jesus says, I have not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. He comes not to abolish, but to fulfill. And when Jesus starts talking about laws from the Old Testament, laws about murder and adultery and lying, thinking Ten Commandments, Jesus shows that the cultural practice around these things was a very thin, very external, very religious adherence to these laws when actually Jesus, as the author of these commands, as the designer of our lives, is saying these commands reach deep and they go broad. That to even harbor anger in your heart towards a brother is sin just as much as murder. To look upon a person with lustful intent is sinful, not only adultery or sexual immorality. And this morning we're going to see that it is not only that <clears throat> bold, black and white lie that counts as sin, but even forms of deceit, those nuanced and sometimes elaborate ways that we hide from the truth and deceive each other. Last week, Robbie gave a kind of a parental warning about his sermon on lust. I want to just give a human being warning. You will feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit here through Jesus' words because this is absolutely a universal problem and a sin that underlies so many other sins, our failure to be honest before God and each other. So let's stand for the reading of God's word. Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Father, we pray that uh, you would take this your word and that you would shine your truth into our hearts and lives through it. May we respond with repentance, not only confessing sin, but seeking to walk in new obedience by your strength. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Each year, the Oxford English Dictionary uh, announces towards the end of the year, usually November or so, they, they announce a word of the year. They uh, point to some word that has either spiked in usage 
in culture or some new word that has been invented and found helpful to describe something in our world. Seven years ago, in 2015, the Oxford English Dictionary chose this as their word of the year. I've got, a, I've got it on a poster. Kids, uh, even if you can't read yet, I think you'll be able to read this one. This was their word of the year for 2015. The smiling, laughing emoji with tears coming out. 2015 was the year in which emoji usage was rising, spiking. Um, That emoji in particular represented 20% of all emojis. Fun fact. Emojis have certainly been increasing in usage. Even my dad sent me a text a couple months ago that included an emoji. This is groundbreaking. (laughs) So, but the reason I mention this is not for the sake of emojis, it's for what came after the Oxford English Dictionary, probably trying to make up for maybe lost credibility that year. In 2016, named a word that actually really is important and significant, significant culturally, both in that year and into our present. It's the year, uh, it's the word post-truth, post-truth. That word began to be used um, in, in a few years earlier, but really in 2016 gained momentum. And it's describing, as the Oxford English Dictionary says, circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. And so they're saying we live in a, in a post-truth era, objective truth, objective facts are on the decline. Not that they don't exist, but they're less influential. Um, some philosophers would even say, are you really able to get at true truth, real objective truth? How can you know it? Um, and so in the post-truth era, you do not hear about the truth as much as you hear about my truth, or different interpretations of facts. So objective truth still exists, rest assured. Objective truth still exists, but it is its influence, its anchor in our culture is certainly on the decline for decades in the academy and now in popular culture for sure. The post-truth era, living in a post-truth era, it's really just one more chapter in a long history of humanity having a a difficult, strained, fragile relationship with the truth of God's Word. It was in the Garden of Eden when our relationship to truth as human beings was first fractured and frayed as Satan entered the garden and uttered the words, did God really say? Did God really say you should not eat of the fruit of the tree in the garden? And ever since, we have been deceived and we have been uh, disappointed by others who have failed to keep their word to us. And ever since then, we have been the deceiver and we have failed to keep our word to others. And in this passage, Jesus cuts through the complex cultural norms of truthfulness and what counts as truth, and he calls us as his people to be simply truthful. Um, that call to be simply truthful in all that we are, in all that we say, in all that we do, that may seem irrelevant or unnecessary or even foolish in the eyes of the world, for, but for us 
as God's people, we long to be a people who hear and trust and follow what Jesus says in his word. And so truth matters, and it matters in our lives. In this passage, Jesus calls us to be people who are simply truthful, first with our ears, and second with our lips, and then third with our hearts. First, Jesus calls us to be simply truthful with our ears. Look back down at verse 33 and then 34a, just the first little phrase of verse 34. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, dot, dot, dot. We'll go on to those other verses in just a moment. Jesus, when he says, you have heard it said, he is not quoting the Old Testament. When Jesus quotes the Old Testament, and he does that a lot in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, to show Jesus as the fulfillment. But when Jesus is quoting the Old Testament, he says, as it is written, and then gives the quote. But here and in the paragraphs surrounding, Jesus is comparing and contrasting uh, what religious scholars are saying about their interpretation of the Old Testament commands and what he is saying about them. And so Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not swear falsely. This is the norm culturally in this day, this Uh, word, this understanding about how a person is to take an oath, what it means to swear truly or swear falsely. We'll get into those details in just a minute. But the point Jesus is beginning with here, and that the thing that we need to see clearly is Jesus is making a distinction. He's creating a divide between what we hear from interpreters, what we hear in our culture of what is right and true, and what he actually says. What he says as the author of his word, as the focal point of his word. In Jesus' day, Jewish scholars thought and wrote about the ethics of lying and were hyper-focused on oath-making. But what we need to see here, uh, most of all, is that Jesus is calling us for our ears to hear him. His voice is the one our world needs to hear. Um, As Peter said to Jesus in Matthew and John chapter 6, Peter says, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of life. Jesus is speaking the words of life. He is the author of truth. And so in this passage on oaths, just as with anger, lust, and divorce, We are called to hear what Jesus says, how he interprets his word and applies it. How do we hear Jesus' voice? We read the word. We read the word. One person put it this way. If you want to hear God speak to you, read the Bible. If you want to hear God speak to you out loud, read the Bible out loud. This is how we hear God's word. This is how we hear Jesus' voice through the Word. And so just a quick plug. If you are going into this new season of life and are not in a Bible study, whether it be a PCPC or another church or a group in the community, if you are not studying the Bible regularly, if you're not reading the Bible regularly, I'd urge you, do it. You need the words of life, words that you may have read already hundreds of times, but that are living and active 
and that God promises to use to pierce our hearts and lives day by day. We need Jesus' voice through His Word in our ears. Second, and really this is the focus of the passage, Jesus calls us to be simply truthful with our lips, with what we say. We see this in verses 34, uh, the second half of verse 34 through verse 37. Jesus says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Now, Jesus here is spending time talking about swearing, not profanity, but oath-making, vow-making, which, of course, in Jesus' day was far more common. Jesus lived in an oral culture in the first century. If you wanted to buy a piece of property, if you wanted to assure someone of something in a formal transactional way, you spoke a promise. You, at times, even went to the city gates, and there were elders who would witness your promise. I will give you so much money for that piece of land, or yes, I will take this person to to be my lawfully wedded husband or wife. There was verbal oath-making. The printing press wasn't invented yet. You weren't signing documents. DocuSign wasn't a thing on your smartphone. You were making verbal oaths, some transactional, some relational. But the oath-making culture of the first century was, was, was thick. And Jesus is a challenging part of the practice here by um, undermining and showing to undermine how people had ranked the significance, not just the significance, but the truthfulness of different O's. They had ranked the accountability by which they were to be judged for keeping an oath or telling the truth in certain contexts and not keeping the oath or not telling the truth in other contexts. They were ranking types of oaths, whether heaven or earth or Jerusalem or head. Uh, D.A. Carson says that there was one rabbi who taught that if you swore in the name of Jerusalem, you were not bound to tell the truth. But if you swore in the name of Jerusalem facing Jerusalem, then it was binding. This was the kind of practice, the kind of hair-splitting oath-making that that Jesus was attacking. Um, Jesus was not necessarily seeking to eliminate oaths. He himself took an oath at his own trial. Are you the Christ? And he replies, you have said so. He's not necessarily trying to eliminate all oaths. Rather, he is trying to help us see that everything we say should bear the truthfulness of a formal binding Oh, there is no context in which it is okay to lie. Not the classroom when you're taking a test and not the athletic field when you look to see whether the ball is in or out. Not the boardroom in a formal presentation or the living room with your family. Not to your spouse versus your children. There's no context, there's no relationship, there's no sliding scale by which truthfulness need not be a concern. All of these contexts, because God is sovereign, because he's omniscient, 
because he is the Lord of all, as he's alluding to here. Our yes should be yes, and our no should be no, and we should keep our vows always. Now, it is natural for us to try to relax the standards of God's word. That's what was happening here in Jesus' day. They were relaxing the standard. They were trying to accommodate the command in order to make it achievable so that they would not feel guilt. And we do this all of the time. And sometimes it's in such a way we almost can't even see it. Sometimes we even wink at it. Um, About 10 or 11 years ago, our family was on vacation during Thanksgiving week, visiting, uh, visiting family out of town. And we were all staying in, in one bedroom together. We have three children. And so our youngest was in a pack and play in the closet. That's what you do on vacation, right? Put the, the little kid in the closet. Um, our second child um, was in the bedroom with him at about two o'clock in the afternoon taking a nap. He was on a sleeping bag on the floor next to a bed. It was nap time. I went to check in on the boys after about 10 or 15 minutes, and I walked in, and Hudson, our second oldest, uh, was not on his sleeping bag. He was missing. He was gone. I looked under the beds. I looked around the side of the other bed, and finally it hit me. He's in the closet. So I open the closet door, and I look into the pack and play, and there is Hudson with Samuel, our one-year-old, in the pack and play. And I said, Hudson, why are you in Samuel's bed? And he said, what? Hudson, why are you in Samuel's bed? He said, just a minute. Climbs out, stands on the floor, looks me in the eye. He said, what did you say? (laughs) He said, Hudson, why are you in Samuel's bed? He said, I'm not. I just got out. almost true in a way, but a severe bending, a severe distortion, answering the question in a different way than I asked. The great part is um, we got it all on video and we watch it every Thanksgiving, year after year. (laughs) Now, that's an innocent, we might categorize that as an innocent example, a, a childish bending of truth. The reality is it's no different in fact or in kind or in principle than any other lie. And so if you want to see a more sinister example, remember Peter's denial of Jesus. Flip there in Matthew chapter 26 if you have a Bible. Matthew 26, you remember the, the story of Jesus denying, uh, of Peter denying Jesus three times, but listen to how Peter does it. He does it by invoking oaths and swearing. It says in Matthew 26, verse 69, Now Peter was sitting outside the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, You also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you mean. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him, and she said to the bystanders, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Certainly, you too are one of them. Your accent betrays you. And then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out 
and wept bitterly. These two examples feel very different, and they are. One's more serious, one's more significant than the other. But the core heart issue in them both is the same. In Hudson's heart and in Peter's heart, self-protection was more important to them than the truth. They were willing to compromise truth for the interest of their own safety, their own standing before some authority. Ultimately, truth-telling is a matter of the heart, not merely a matter of the lips. It's not merely a matter of the kind of oath you make or the context in which you make it. It's a matter of the heart. Your ability to tell the truth is a heart issue. And so third and finally, this is where Jesus lands in this passage at the end of verse 37. He says, let what you say be simply yes or no. And then he goes on, anything more than this comes from evil. And so Jesus is calling us to be simply truthful in our hearts. He's, he's alluding to that, that there is a source of evil. There's a source of dishonesty. There's a source of deceit that is deeper than the lips, and it's the heart. Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, he says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so what we have here in this passage is not merely a problem of of how vows were being made and oaths were being made. It was a problem of the heart. It was a problem of deep submission and obedience to be truthful before God, for he sees all and knows all. And if something other than Jesus is ruling your heart, you will continue to put that thing above the truth. You will continue to deceive You will continue to disappoint others by your deception. You will always put that thing in front of the truth. Personally, this has been a hard passage for me to prepare and for me to preach this week because it's deeply convicting for me. I am a uh, notorious people pleaser. Simple, humble, honesty before any person of any rank or any proximity in me to relationship, at times I find it really hard because I want to say what I think people will want to hear. And sometimes that causes me to to bend the truth or even lie. Theologians of another generation would call this, for me, a besetting sin, just humble, simple Honesty, yes, no, no added explanation, no elaboration, no twisting, no nuance. I know those who know me well know this is true of me already, but I wanted to share it with you because the last thing I want to do is stand in this pulpit and, and give any illusion or any impression that, that I have this figured out, I do not. And the good news is that uh, Jesus, for his people in the new covenant, is taking us as lumps of clay and softening us and reshaping us more and more into his image. He is doing this very kind of work in the hearts of his people today for those who trust in Jesus Christ. He is doing this work of sanctifying, even sanctifying our lips 
We read earlier in our call to worship from Zephaniah chapter 3, a beautiful passage. But I want you to turn just a few pages. It's really only, you know, 10 or 15 pages back in your Bible to Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 9. And listen, I'm actually going to begin reading in verse 12. Zephaniah chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, Zephaniah is giving a promise and a prophecy of the new covenant of what will happen for God's people in the age of the kingdom of God. And he says this, I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord. Those who are left in Israel, they shall do no injustice and speak no lies. Nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue. For they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. The connection Zephaniah makes there is that it is those who trust in the name of the Lord, those who seek refuge, protection, safety in the name of the Lord, whose tongues no longer have to speak any lies. Hudson and Peter spoke lies out of self-protection. We, as God's people, do not need to protect ourselves. We are safe in Jesus Christ by His precious blood, by His body being broken on the cross, by His resurrection and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We are safe in Him, and we can tell the truth, come what may. We can tell the truth, and God is doing that kind of work in all our hearts. In our prayer this morning, the prayer from this passage is that with our ears and our lips and our hearts, that we would be a simple, whole people. Jesus used that word, simply yes, simply no, no complication, no division, that we would be a whole person, allowing God's truth to dwell in us purely, completely. Alicia is going to come in just a moment and sing a song that reflects that, a prayer that, that seeks God's help that we would be made whole again in this era of the new covenant, made whole again with our minds, with our eyes, with our lips, and ultimately with our hearts. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would take your word and that you would convict, that you would point us to Jesus again and again and find our life in him. And Father, we pray that you would change us more and more into his image. We pray that in these words, we would, we would see, even today, even this week, as we go about business and relationships and sports, may we be people who tell the truth out of honor for you, and out of security of being loved by you. In Jesus' name, amen.